Hello, and welcome to another episode of Who Knew in the Moment, the podcast. I'm your host, Phil Friedrich, and today I'm honored to have Cordell Carter II with me. Uh, Cordell has done many different things, and we're going to learn about those today. Uh, currently serves in a very uh, intricate role with the Aspen Institute and developing different programs there. And one of the, th the biggest takeaways I think you're going to hear from Cordell's story today is how being willing to pivot as opportunities present themselves can be a very important piece to get you to your your ultimate calling. So Cordell, thanks so much for being on today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. You bet. So to start your story, um, originally uh, grew up in Virginia, and then at mm -hmm. some point, dad moves you over to the West Coast. So yeah. talk a little bit about, you know, growing up, developing relationships, and then also in that formative years, uh, kind of going to a whole new environment uh, and having to reinvent or, you know, continue on there. Yeah, you know, so I'm a kid from the 80s. I, I like to say I'm I'm the last of the Huck Finn generation because we we were we had la we had keys around our necks, little like uh metallic chain underneath yeah. your clothes. We would come and go as we please. As long as you were home before that porch light came on, you were good. And so I remember just running and diving into the lawn before the street light came on. Uh, otherwise, my mother would embarrass me uh, by yelling my name from the porch as if it was, you know, a little house in the prairie. And uh, but it was fun. I mean, we would go out and have adventures. We had no agenda. We was like, OK, we're going to go fishing today. Cool. Let's go and buy some chicken gizzards and we'll crab and fish. And we would do this as eight, nine year olds. And so it was amazing. Summers were just we look forward to it. There were there were no we didn't play video games. They were there like at Atari. But like, why would you want to sit in the house all day? Let's go out and do stuff. Yeah. And so we would get our little B and little Huffies and BMXs and we would just go around like we were the Goonies. It was awesome. <laughs> and um, then the big shock was in uh, March of 1990. Well, Chris was 1990. When my dad said we were moving to Washington State. I said, no, that means you're moving. I'm not moving. <laughs> and and he smiled and like, yeah, like whatever. We we are moving. I, I, I don't want you all to grow up like me and say that you only lived in one place your whole life. Mm -hmm. And prior to that point, I'd never been on an airplane. And I was uh, in the middle of freshman year of high school. And this was a, a performing arts school. You had to actually apply to get there. You couldn't just go. And um, it was quite the shock for me. But I had this epiphany. It was on March of 14th, 1990. I was uh, with my two sisters. We were on uh, a plane heading to Seattle from Atlanta. It was an old TWA flight. So these yes. giant planes. And, you know, the, we had entire rolls. Or so we were running up and down the aisles. It was awesome. And I, I found my spot, my row, and I got in the corner and just had a conversation with God. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, I have been living beneath my potential trying to fit in. Mm -hmm. I'm going to this place where no one knows me. I get to really be who I wanted. This is a chance to start over and, and be the best version of myself. And it was like a trampoline um, that I'm still riding the high of yeah. all the way from March of 14th, 1990, when my life changed um, for the better. And I began to be a little more open and embraceive of, of differences. I would never in a million years thought I could quote entire albums from Pearl Jam and stuff. That's just not stuff we listened to coming up in Virginia. Never thought I would get accustomed to those gray skies for nine months a year and find inspiration behind it and love Seattle as much as I, I still do. But but yeah, moving to Seattle was a, a very positive thing for me. I ended up doing undergraduate out there and just, you know, loving being in Seattle, got involved in politics out there, mostly through labor negotiations with, with unions. Uh, so <laughs> some parts of Seattle, I'm not so popular, but I was doing my job. But um, it was some formative experiences that happened as a teenager. And I'm, I'm so thankful for the opportunity I've had that. 
Now, you had a realization at a younger age than I think a lot of people do, or sometimes people never do. And that is, sometimes we get comfortable in the environment that we're Mm -hmm. in. And we don't, sometimes we don't know any different, or other times we stiff arm the differences, right? It's like, oh, I'm I'm comfortable in my environment. You know, why do I need to go pursue something else? Why do I need to give, put myself out there? And so talk a bit about the growth that happened in you as a person, as you were willing to step into that. And uh, once again, that continues to be a uh, trajectory you're on where you step into maybe new or uncomfortable, different situations. Yeah. You know, I, um, one of the last sermons I heard in 1989, fall of 1989, was uh, I forget the name of the the, the 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 preacher, but he was really short. He was about my size. I remember that, and I remember him getting in the pulpit and looking out because he could hardly see the pulpit, and everyone laughed. But the the name of his sermon was "Walk Towards Danger," hmm. and um, I actually paid attention at that time because yeah. I liked the title. It was really catchy. I'm like, okay, this is different. And he ta- he gave story after story uh, from sacred texts about people, unlikely people doing incredible things because they were willing to take a risk mm-hmm. and, and follow their calling. And I knew that a leader was inside of me, but that leader wasn't being exposed, wasn't giving opportunity to grow in Virginia. Now, my yeah. parents had alter- ulterior motives for moving us at the time they did at around 14, 15 is when all of my male cousins started getting in real big trouble um, and like getting arrested and all that. And, and I love these guys. We hung out a lot. I wasn't a troublemaker. I was really good student all the time. I was gifted and talented, but it like, you know, why take the, the risk? Let's just get them out of this environment. Now I yeah. found that out years later. I just thought, it, now it was a job transfer. It just so yeah. happened that he pushed for it. Yeah. I thought it was thrust <laughs> upon them, <laughs> but they were like, I am not going to let my son go out that way. We think there's some potential in him. And so as I reflect upon like all that that meant to the family, that massive transition, um, the stress related to it, just to make sure that I had a shot at realizing my potential, I said, how could I not mm-hmm. do all that I can to pay them back? I, they need to have ROI because yeah. I am their biggest venture. Yeah. And this, this, <laughs> this venture has to be 3X, 4X, 5X. And so um, now in my mid 40s, well, late 40s, um, and I think about the relationship I have with my parents who are in their early 70s, mm-hmm. how close we are. We talk you know, three times a week. Uh, they travel with me around the world. All these new projects I'm doing, I bring them with me. And I, and I honor them on the stage. Like, hey, these are, these are my personal mascots here, mom and dad. Please, <laughs> please say hi to Reverend Carter and Mrs. Carter. Like, I, I hope they think it's worth it. It was definitely worth it to me. Yeah. Um, like, I get it. And so I found myself, I, I told myself, just say yes. Like, they were like, who wants to do this? And I was, uh, yes. Yes. I just started saying yes more to things. And, you know, I remember the first yes was being the choir president for the acapella choir. Um, Prior to being in Washington State, you know, we grew up singing in church, but I would never sing it at school. Yeah. But, you know, you had to do a performing arts credit. So I Mm -hmm. said, well, let's do music. I know that well. Mm -hmm. And they were like, hey, you know, you're you you can you can really do this. You can be this the uh, the the lead for first tenors. You can be in a school musical. I'm like, yes. I was about yeah. to say no. Yes, yeah. yes. And um, end up getting a scholarship to undergrad, uh, a partial scholarship to be in a university chorale. Okay. Yeah. And uh, to this day, I, I still, you know, vibe out to listen to St. Olaf Choir. They're like the best acapella choir in the world, by the way, in Minnesota. Yeah. St. Yeah. Olaf Choir, yeah. St. Olaf College, they're tremendous. And, you know, I, I listen to them everywhere I travel. That's what calms me down. And this is music that I sing as a, as a teenager. Um, and this influence on me has been um, 
quite remarkable. I mean, my, my daughter has grown up listening to Handel's Messiah. Yeah. Every November is when we started. We played all the way through to January. She played it. We played to it in utero, and so she can sing along just like I can. And like how that's changed the way you think and the way you you see the world and how you appreciate beautiful things um, mm. and how you compare these things. Like you, with all due respect to uh, one of my favorite rappers, you know, Notorious B.I.G. Yeah. You can't compare them to, to Frisbee <laughs> Handel. It's just. They're masterpieces in different ways. One is yes. a is a true masterpiece, and one is just a really good song. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really, really good song. And so, and I know the difference now, right? Yeah. And so, you, you start thinking about all these different moves. If, if life is these series of Venn diagrams, these different steps you take, for me, it's always been yes. Mm. And the yes has led led to 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 greater experiences. Yeah. Challenges, yes, but yeah. you you either learn or you win. I mean, mm. you really don't lose. And so. Um, I can't think of living any other way other than saying yes. And even when I feel like overwhelmed, like this moment right now, I feel pretty overwhelmed. I got a lot going on and I really want to just relax and chill, but I got to say yes, because I know that yes leads to bigger things. And so that, that's been the greatest effect. Just saying yes. Yes. So to parlay off of that, one of the yeses that you make is a yes to going to law school and you end up going to Notre Dame for law school. Mm-hmm. Um, one, talk a little bit about, you know, why you picked Notre Dame, you know, how you decided to go down the law route. But two, while you're there, kiddo number one, uh, you know, join, joins the family. So talk a little bit about, you know, that season of life there. Yeah. So we, we had a, a few choices of different law schools to attend and uh, visited a couple uh, the visit to Notre Dame was very special. Number one, their sales, I should say marketing motto is we educate a different type of lawyer. Mm. And I'm like, hmm, well, how different? Right? Yeah, so yeah. so when my wife and I arrived to campus, the uh, one law student took me away and the spouse of that law student took her away. And we were, went off a different direction. So we had mm. very different tours. Yeah. So her tour was more like, this is the life. This is what it looks like. This is how much homes cost. This is where we could possibly live. And his tour for me was, I'm sorry, she, she toured me. He was a spouse. Yeah. So her tour for me was all about, you know, the academic pieces, the social pieces. And we both come back uh, together for lunch. And I'm like, I kind of like this place. She's yeah. like, me too. I didn't expect to, but I did. <laughs> and and we ultimately decided to go to Notre Dame and it proved to be a tremendous decision. Um, I literally was on the phone with Notre Dame today, you know, mm-hmm. 15 years after graduating. I'm talking to them about their anti-poverty initiatives, these massive things they want to do uh, that to, to affect the world. Uh, this notion of Catholic social thought. And, you know, you take the good, you take the bad. Um, but you also like, what, what is the impact you're looking to have on the world? I'm, I'm more mm-hmm. interested in your intent than the outcome sometimes. Yeah. And uh, I find more than, more than 50% of the time, this is resulting in, in a good thing for the world. And I'm like, I'm going to take that good 50. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, it was a very civically engaged experience. Uh, my, my daughter was born my, uh, first semester, third year of law school. And I'll never forget my tax professor's wife delivered her. She delivered all the babies <laughs> at Notre Dame. And I and I remember saying, you know, I called him the day uh, of the delivery. So it was November 16th, like six in the morning. And I texted him, I said, I know we have a, an exam today, sir, but your wife is about to deliver my, my child. <laughs> he was like, well, congratulations, Cordell. I said, great, right? And um, we were having some issues getting out of the house because my wife was, the contractions were really hard. So like two hours later, we hadn't really left the house. And so he called, he called back. It was like, hey, 
you're not at the hospital yet. What's going on? I said, no, 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 we're going, we're going, we're getting there. We're getting there. So we, we get to the hospital, they greet us. And it was a women's hospital. And so they meet you at the car, they, you get out, they park the car for you. It was like a really holistic experience. Yeah. And, um, you know, everything is great. And I, and I text him the next day and I said, well, you know, I appreciate a week extension. I just had a kid. And he's like, well, congratulations. We'll do a few home, do Hail Mary's for you. I'll give you two days. This is Nordane. We all got kids. <laughs> it's great. And so literally, uh, I want to say maybe a week before that, we're doing gravity walks, my wife and I, and I'm telling her, I'm like, you know, I just discovered that I can, uh, because I, I spent a semester in London the, the summer before that I have over 90 credits. I qualify to take the bar exam early. And she grabs my arm out of breath and she says, you should take it early so we can summer in France with a baby. And I'm like, okay, I have two days to apply. And she's like, I was like, okay, okay, I'm applying, I'm applying. So I get it, I rush it, I get it in. And uh, I take the bar that next February. And, um, you know, driving to Indianapolis, I remember the first day is uh, multi-state, you know, the bubbles, six hours of that. My hands were, I literally could not move my hands afterwards. So I go to a, um, uh, a manicure place and I said, listen, I just need you to massage my hand. It's like, I have a cramp and I can't move it. And they look at me where I'm like, I'll pay you whatever. Just please make this hand normal. I need it tomorrow yeah. to write for six hours. And so um, I started writing um, the next day. I'm writing six hours is, you know, you have to pick six different essays. Uh, I'm pretty certain I failed. I want to get out of there as soon as possible. I could not figure out how to, how to get back on the freeway. I mean, my brain is gone. Literally, yeah, I mean, right. I've never had that feeling ever since then, right? Just yeah. complete mental exhaustion. And so I go to a gas station and there's a police officer there. And I said, hey, I just I just took the bar. I, I, can't, I can't figure out how to get home. Help me. He was like, oh, you just came from the bar? I'm like, yeah, I came from the bar. He was like, let's go outside. Let's do it. Like, I want to talk to you. And so I'm like, why are you making me do this? I don't, I'm like, I just took the bar exam. And he was like, oh, are you going to be a prosecutor or a defense counsel? I said, prosecutor. And he says, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll escort you to the, uh, the freeway. And so he literally showed me where to get in the freeway and I was able to go back home. And, you know, I completely put out my mind, start preparing for the, the summer bar exam like everyone else. Yeah. And two days before graduation, two days, someone uh, sends an email and said, congratulations. And I said, what? <laughs> and he says, uh, you, we passed the bar. He was part of my study group guy in Chicago, he says, we all passed the bar. And I'm like, and I went to the Indianapolis Star and I saw my name and I, we were all in the law library and I stood up <laughs> and I said some really un-Catholic things out loud, but essentially uh, Cordell Carter Esquire um, expletives and yeah. threw my, my text like in the air and walked out with my hands up. And they were like, you know, go to H-E double hockey six Cordell, congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I walked across the graduation stage with my six month old daughter in hand as a lawyer. How cool. And yeah, yeah. That was that was my crowning achievement of law school. And, as, and my Nordic things. Yes. So as you're progressing through that, um, you have different jobs that you've been a part of. I mean, you were a part of large corporations such as mm -hmm. IBM. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you know, you were a part of things that were doing big work, but maybe smaller in regards to like scale of a business. So talk a little bit about being in the corporate um, side of things versus as you progress into different foundations. And we'll talk about some of those foundations yet. Yeah. So I started my career with IBM fresh out of graduate school um, in the year of 2000. And I was there from 2000, 2004, to basically so I went to law school. And what I appreciate most about IBM is, is they would say there's a right way, there's a wrong way, there's an IBM way. So we have our own sense of excellence. 
And you do excellence for excellence sake. And that doesn't mean you build a client for everything because I was in global services, the consulting side. No, I knew what excellence looks like. And I had to uh, make sure we were achieving a certain level. And I expected that of my peers as well. And so it was, it was an amazing learning experience. I had no idea that I was being indoctrinated in this notion that, you know, you do excellence for excellence sake, because it's possible. That's why you do it. Not because yeah. it's demanded. It's for you. It's your own sense of, of, of propriety, your own, your own standard. And so when I got out, um, I saw when I started working in law firms, it's that same level, right? Uh, people pursuing like excellent work, Except in a law context, you you bill for every second. Right? <laughs> but, yeah. Like I, I just thought about it. I would have if I were so lawyer, I would have billed right now for having said that. You know, um, and then when you kind of shift towards some of these other organizations, smaller startups, um, school districts, um, foundations, uh, you have to do a really good job as a leader, as a unit leader, to get people on that because mm. there's really no incentives to do it, right? Yeah. And especially when you're the funder, um, you could be as sloppy as you want, as long as you get the money out the door and all your jokes will be funny and you'll be the best looking person you've ever been because they want something that you have. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you're the service provider, I just I just feel like you you should do excellent work. And so that's my metric when I'm interviewing people now for different roles. I'm like, well, what's your sense of excellence? I'll give you a scenario and I'll give you three, four options of things that are good enough. And I'm trying to figure out, well, what's excellence to you? And yeah. people kind of look at you weird. It's like, well, it's whatever the customer wants. So I'm like, really? What if the customer doesn't know what excellence is? But yeah. you know. Right. You know that you half-assed this, but they'll never know, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. so uh, I, it actually influences the way I, I, I raise my, my daughter. I mean, my 17-year-old daughter, she sounds a lot like me in many respects. Like you, sometimes, look, when you have an opportunity to be excellent, do it. Yeah. Not because anyone's going to recognize it, but you're going to know. Mm-hmm. You're, and that's, that's the most important audience, you. Because you um, got to look at yourself in the mirror and know that like, did I did I put in a solid eight today or did I put in two and just lollygag for the other six? So, you know? yeah, so I love that. And, you know, I think something that you mentioned is interesting that, you know, IBM, large corporation, uh, you know, instills that. And then and one might think that your comment would be flip flopped like the larger the corporation, the harder it is because you have so many people you're trying to, you know, yeah. you know, uh, adopt or, you know, abide by that. And well, gosh, if it's just me and one other person or me and 10 people, well, it should be relatively easy span of control, right? I have access to it. But to your point, it, it might be a little bit different uh, in regards to how that actually works. So talk about creating culture within organizations and specifically, you know, how maybe the leader has to be the lead, but you need the follower, you need the first adopter to to really yeah. buy in. I, I think one of the most challenging transitions from individual performer to me, uh, to leader for, for me was, was uh, trying to stay out of the actual execution mm. because I know what excellence is. So often, especially as a young leader, you're inheriting teams, soft yeah. teams are older than you. And so uh, you can be the heavy and say, listen, either we're going to do it my way or, you know, you got to go. Um, or you try to convince them, you get them to buy in. And so I've, I've often, especially in, I would say, the first five years of when I start getting to, to upper management, I found myself working a lot because I didn't have the skills to sell them mm-hmm. on what I was trying to 
to, to create. And so I started doing the work myself and sharing credit. Mm. Now, most honest professionals, they know when they haven't done anything yep. and they're, they're standing up and get an award and they know they didn't deserve it. And you give them that knowing look. Okay. Yeah. So the next team meeting is a little different, right? Yeah. Then, then, you know, I was, I was relying on guilt. <laughs> so yeah. um, now, now it's different. The transition is, is different. Now I, it's, it's about ex, you're, as a leader, you own the vision. Mm. And so you got to spend some time coming with a compelling vision uh, that is um, executable, um, that actually adds value, I think, to, to yeah. the greater society, making a link to the greater good. Uh, and then you go out and you find the people that agree. And so I often find myself looking for similar organizations and recruiting from them, recruiting from my own network, people who already know me and, and know how I like to work. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I have one speed. I, I, I'm working or I'm not. Yeah. And I, okay. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't really recognize weekends. I recognize your weekends, but I don't recognize weekends yeah. um, because there'll be a, a lot of weekends when we're no longer breathing. Right. And so um, I like to work while it's day. And so uh, getting folks on that, I'm not going to say it's, it's easy now, but it, it's still a challenge, but I, I'm aware of that challenge. Yeah. And as long as I can attach this to a much bigger vision, as long as they're being compensated well, as long as they're getting opportunity to do some of the things I'm doing, like traveling around the world, I have found it a somewhat easier to sell these big grand visions now. Yeah. Uh, then I also have a track record, right? I've, yeah. I've executed wherever I've been. So it's not like I'm just pulling things out of the air and saying, hey, let's do this. No, I have a good reason for saying this and and some track record of actually executing on big things. And so um, I guess uh, there's no substitute for time and seat. You just got to do the work. Yeah, That's one of my biggest ahas. You have to do the work. There's no substitute for it. Uh, and um, a lot of the counsel that I give younger people now I said, you need to get somewhere and sit down for five years. Yeah. What? I was like, go sit down for five years. Well, I have these entrepreneurs. How are you going to be a great entrepreneur? And, and you don't even know how to work. You don't have a team. You don't have to listen to others. Mm. You never raise money. I mean, dude, you are not ready. You're yeah. kidding yourself if you think you're the next Mark Zuckerberg. There's a reason we know his name. There's yep. one of them. One. Mm -hmm. A country of 350 million people. There's one guy named Mark Zuckerberg that's done what he's able to do, right? Yep. With a lot of help. And so to assume that you're that guy without the same inputs that he had is ridiculous. It's like saying, I'm going to go pro in basketball and you're five foot two. Yeah. I'm like, huh, really? Okay. Um, how many people less than six foot six are NBA players, my friend? How many NBA players? There's, there's less than a thousand of them. You're saying you're one of, come on. I mean, let's be reasonable here. So, um, there's no substitute for doing the work. That's no. That's been the biggest aha for me. I love it. Now, another aha for you or just uh, maybe grouping and getting introduced to people that maybe are like-minded was this Socrates event that you got invited to in 2011. So yeah. talk a little bit about just what that is, but then also why you felt so connected at that event. Yeah, so I have been tracking the Aspen Institute since 1996. Uh, there used to be, before the internet, these things called <laughs> the, the Who's Who's Guide of American Leaders. And there's these big and these giant tomes and these index. And I would follow people uh, that I admire, like Colin Powell and, you know, mm -hmm. cabinet secretary, these people I aspired to be. And I would see what they did that year. And they would have basically these little notes on where they've been, where they appeared. 
And I kept seeing the Aspen Institute, Aspen Institute, Aspen Institute. I didn't know what it was. I put it out of my mind. 15 years later, I'm, I'm in my first year of lobbying in 2011. And someone from the Aspen Institute, which was next door to my office, I didn't know that, comes over to introduce themselves. His name was uh, Gary. I forget his last name. His first name was Gary. And um, he's like, you know, you'd be perfect for uh, Socrates. I'm like, what is it? He says, you know, it's uh, a bunch of really smart people get together and talk about contemporary leadership topics and then they ski. <laughs> I'm like, I'm in. Yeah, Count I love that. This, right. And so that next winter, um, I I, uh, I go to Socrates and Aspen. The topic was social media and society. Mm. And at that point, I, I was hard on social media. I think I just had a Facebook account. I had no uh, uh, Twitter uh, was fairly new at that point. I, I didn't tweet or anything like that. And uh, we talked about these issues uh, and civil discourse for for uh, for three days. And I'm still not a skier, but I enjoyed being out there in the winter. Um, just met some amazing people. It was it was like having a three day dose of the most intense version of graduate school that you ever have with some really smart people. But it was one moment there where uh, we were talking about um, how lobbyists are gumming up um, our political system. And I'm, I'm waxing, I'm being philosophical about things. And one of the gentlemen said, excuse me, if I may, uh, Quirto, aren't you a lobbyist? I said, yes. He says, uh, so you're responsible for gumming up the system. And I was like, well, and I'm sure I'd said something clever, but clearly my, my conscience was pricked. Yeah. And I became super uncomfortable, right? And uh, within three months, I was I was out of it. And I was back into um, education, doing things with National Alliance and Public Charter Schools. But I'd never forgot that experience and how transformational it was for me. And I just started recruiting a lot of people to go. And uh, five years later, you know, I'm, I'm finishing up my startup in Chattanooga, and I'm back from China. It's after the election. And I'm in DC. It was December the fourth, uh, 2016. I'm good with dates, by the way. And I can I'm, tell. I, yeah, I'm in a Starbucks, and uh, someone says Cordell. I'm like, I know that voice. That's that's Melissa from the Socrates program. I go and find her, and um, she says, Hey, how was uh, how was China? It was great. I, I did an Eisenhower Fellowship in China, and she says, Well, what are you doing in town? I said, I'm here for a Christmas party, and I'm about to take a job with Ashoka. She was like, You left your startup? I'm like, Yeah. And she said, You're not considering Aspen. And I was like, what do you mean considering Aspen? What role? She's like, let me show you something. So she walks me back to her office, which is across the uh, DuPont circle from the Starbucks. And she has like people to replace me. And she has my name, like a teenage love letter circled 15,000 times, right? In really dark ink. And she says, you never even applied. And I'm like, uh, I, well, I, I, and I didn't have a good excuse. I'm like, you know, I said, well, listen, I've already done eight rounds with Ashoka. She says, well, just do me a favor and just talk to a couple of people. I said, sure, I'll come back. She says, oh no, they're here. They're doing final round interviews today. And I'm like, okay. Just say yes though. Just say so, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I said, yes. I sat in, I sat in the, um, in the, uh, the conference room and three trustees were wrapping up. They came back up from their cars they interviewed me and maybe an offer on the spot. And then I had to actually formally apply. <laughs> so, but uh, it's been probably the best seven years of my career. I mean, the Aspen Institute was started in the late forties to create a space for um, leaders to come together and find their common humanity. Moreover, to really um, uh, contend with their obligation to greater society. It's not enough for me to be successful. I have to be significant.
And so of all the 80 programs at Aspen, the question before us all the time, like, yes, we know you're successful, you're here, but are you significant? Are you doing things that matter? I add a third category to it that's not really Aspen, but more what I've learned, and that's surrender. From success to to uh, significance to surrender. Surrender requires something a little different than significance because I have to let go and yeah. and and really be embraced of what the universe is, is, is bringing my way. And if I'm trying to be significant, trying to make impact, I'm still kind of driving uh, the car. Uh, but uh, surrender is self-driving. You just let go and, and trust the algorithm, right? And so um, creating and curating seminars, I've probably done more than 200 now over the last seven years. Uh, we've done them in probably 15 different countries. Um, and in my own my own right, visit another 15 countries through either Eisenhower or uh, personal invitations for people to come and speak. It is it has been it has been the 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 best seven years of my life. And you think about all the things that you've experienced. Remember, I said earlier that life is a, kind of a Venn diagram. Yeah. And um, for me, I've been a series of yeses. Uh, all of those yeses matter. Because all those random factoids you pick up here and this experience you hear that it starts relating and it becomes this amazing gumbo that just takes amazing and the most opportune times. And so um, I probably need to double up on saying yes, because I'm, I'm liking what the universe is, is giving me based on the inputs that I've, I've put out there. But Aspen is a huge part of that just because of the, the community that it draws is self-selected right? Um, you either have your super selective leadership programs or these two-year experiences. I'm a public program. And so I'm really focused on um, curating uh, interesting topics and interesting people, people that would never normally connect. And there's no reason for them to, to be, to know each other, but we'll make sure they know each other and have a common experience at Aspen. And the real seminar is not the text, it's the people. Yeah, you know, People are text, location is text. Uh, the environment you curate is text. And so creating safe spaces for people to have these challenging conversations on topics of great controversy is, is become my jam. This is what I do. It's what I enjoy. And I, I can't help but think um, saying yes to, to Notre Dame when I'm not Catholic and uh, had never been to Indiana. Uh, saying yes to, to Broad and spending a year in Germany, uh, even though you think it's going to take you off track. But, you know, I speak random uh, German to random Germans and really throw them off because they're not expecting <laughs> those sounds to come from my face. Um, uh, saying yes, Eisenhower, saying yes, IBM, all these things, these yeses add up and um, they've been really, really fruitful for not just me, but, but everyone associated with me. Cause I bring folks along with I'm a typical preacher's kid. You come with, you know, and uh, it's, it's been great. I have, I have no complaints. So I want to dive into a couple of things you said, uh, and I love the significance to surrender piece. And I think the the interesting dynamic of that is oftentimes people that have reached levels of significance, um, whether that's due to uh, things they've been a part of, companies they started, you know, whatever the venture is, oftentimes they have to be the ones steering the ship, right? They're they're steering the car, that and they're there. And then to your point, there's that point in life though where all of a sudden you have to surrender, but for a lot of people, it's a lot harder to surrender when you've always been in control or you've always mm -hmm. been the one steering. So, you know, whether it's someone you've mentored, whether it's yourself, uh, how can somebody that it has been striving for significance, accomplishing great things, and always kind of felt like, hey, I'm, you know, 
steering the ship here, uh, how can they learn to surrender to something bigger than themselves and what they're accomplishing? Yeah, well, it's certainly a work in progress. And I'll <laughs> tell you my my story, because it really hit hyperdrive for me in 2020, um, a week after George Floyd was uh, murdered, there were protests all over the country, especially yeah. places where you had Confederate uh, imagery or statues, uh, my hometown of Portsmouth, Virginia being one. Mm-hmm. Um, so my parents moved back to Portsmouth uh, when I was in college. And my father's part of the, the Black Ministerial Alliance. He and about 12 other ministers between their 60s and 80s were out there trying to prevent uh, a melee. And because uh, they know like there's there's different rules in Southern Virginia. The, the, the sheriff is kind of independent. He can do different things than places. Uh, These are all civil rights era laws. And yeah. the, the sheriff basically can bring prosecution, even though the DA doesn't want to or declines. Um, and so the kids come, came to Confederates Plaza with Bobcats. I don't know if you know what a Bobcat is. Yeah. Uh, these small tractors. Yeah. And uh, with rope, they were going to be pulling down statues. The sheriff was determined not to let that happen. Mm-hmm. And you got these older Black men trying to pray and make things peaceful. Well, things didn't go well. It was uh, certainly a melee. A lot of people were arrested, heads bashed in. It was It was not good. But uh, more tragically, eight of the 12 ministers who were there, including my father, contracted COVID. So remember, this is this is June right. 2020. Yeah. There is no vaccine. Right. I saw my father the next week at um, Father's Day. He was here with us in the D.C. area. And he was like, yeah, you know, I got a bad cold. My chest hurts. And I'm hitting my chest. and said, hey, it better not be COVID. He was like, stop. It hurts. I was like, OK. That night, he went to the emergency room and stayed in the hospital for the next 30 days. ICU. Mm-hmm. Um of the eight people that contracted COVID, seven of them died. Wow. Okay. And my mother calls me and my mother is not known for being a calm person. When she's calm, I'm, I'm concerned. Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I'm like, she's like, well, baby, um, it's not looking good. Wow. Um, he's not recovering. They're, they're going to intubate him. If he intubates, you know, with his lung issues, he, he's not going to make it, baby. So while we're still calm, I need you to start thinking about what his memorial is going to look like. At least start identifying who's going to sing and all that stuff. That's a big deal in our community. Yeah. And I said, um, okay. And so I, I uh, started getting into it and like kind of doing a draft of the memorial service. And I got caught up on um, who was I willing to offend by not asking them to sing at dad's mm. would have been a zoom memorial. Yeah. Our homegoing ceremonies in Southern Virginia are five, six hours. I mean, these are concerts, okay? Yeah. Everyone has something to say. Everyone wants to sing. And um, I flipped the question on myself. Mm. I said, who's going to sing for me? Uh, what would be the song? Most of the people that I grew up with uh, are not on LinkedIn, okay? Yeah, right. Uh, and they don't care about my accolades. They don't care who I worked for, how much money I raised, and who I know. Um, their song is going to be pretty standard because in their minds, like, I don't know him anymore. Mm -hmm. He left and never came back. And I was really bothered by that. And I had to really just kind of just sit with it. It it was, it was making me uncomfortable. Three days later, I get a call. It's my dad. And I didn't recognize his voice. He has like one of those Simba voice. Like, how are you? Like, and he's like, Hey, I mean, I was like, who is this? Like, you know, And it was my dad. He was recovering. And, you know, the great story there. But th- that that moment of of confusion stuck with me. And so I said, well, what are the things that I think are significant? Yeah. And one of the I've always desired to create an enterprise 
that focus on this idea of belonging. You know, most people talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, and that's fine. But belonging is the outcome we're trying to achieve. Mm. This idea that, you know, we all belong and should enjoy equitable opportunities to thrive. I had no really mechanism for doing that work. So I created an LLC to do that work, right? I also created what I call the secular tent revival. And that's the Festival of Diaspora. And, and it was the idea, you know, I grew up um, in the 80s, in the summers, uh, they would put tents in the parking lots of our churches. And we would do vacation Bible school and yeah. and church service outside for two weeks. And, and random people come up. And I remember you would see folks that you would never normally see, only maybe Easter. And it was come as you are. And um, the music was different. You, like, even as a kid, you knew this was different. Yeah. Right. And it was something we look forward to. And I said, what's the secular version of that? Because I, I can't be what my father is. I, I That's not my calling. Yeah. Right. But I do have a calling. And it was at that moment that things begin. Uh, I should say I entered the season of convergence, like this notion of like, what you're trained to do, what you like doing and what you were born to do or called to do kind of come together. Mm -hmm. And that's when work disappears mm -hmm. because you're you've tapped into the universal ohm. And you're just doing your thing and everything matters and the needs you thought you had, you're like, oh man, I need to make a certain amount to cover my, but it's, we got it. It's okay. It's, yeah. it'll, it'll happen. And the last three and a half years of my life post dad almost dying from COVID have been the best. Mm. Three enterprises that I'm running concurrently, they all have employees, things are happening, we're, we're making impact. I'm approaching surrender. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm trying to deal with significance, yeah. but I'm, I'm also approaching surrender because yeah. at some point you get big enough where you're not needed. Yeah. Okay. I don't need I, to be, I don't need to do the weekly calls. Um, I don't, I don't need to be actively engaged. They're just going to tell me where to be and where to show up. And then I can really focus on surrender because then I'm letting some other people run it and I'm listening to the universe better. And so my advice to people um, is that please don't let a near death of your loved parent be the trigger for you. You know, I probably should have done this 10 years ago. Uh, so don't don't let that be the driver. Like, take some time, do a, a personal retreat, do a self-assessment and figure out like, what is it? What do I want my memorial services to be? What do I want them to talk about? And then work backwards. Yeah. Well, I, I think, I mean, to your point, I think the inevitable reality for a lot of people is as you're describing surrender, perspective gives you know, that, that realization, right? I mean, you, mm -hmm. you think you have control, but the sooner you realize that, I mean, you have control of some of the decisions you make, right? Some but you don't yeah. have ultimate control. No, you don't. Uh, probably the quicker you could get to that uh, view of surrender. So I love uh, it. Absolutely. And I, and I think it is different for different people. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've heard I'm now talking to people that are in this phase of surrender and they say, it's a constant battle. It's a constant battle because their notion of surrender is different than, than uh, perhaps what the universe is leading them. Mm -hmm. And they're like, I don't, I'm not sure I'm completely comfortable with that. Cause that's not how I got to this point. Yeah. And so I'm just not sure. I'm not sure. I don't know. How I, I, like, I'm gonna go with it, but I'm not sure. They said, I want to get to the point where I'm sure. And so I'm just getting, I'm just trying to like get to that point where I'm, I'm open to surrender. Yeah. Uh, but now I acknowledge it exists. There's a different yep. level. And uh, I'm not there yet, uh, but we're I'm on my way. Or as I'm we would say in the South, I'm working on it. I'm, I'm working, working on it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir.
So in 2021, you get a neat uh, invitation um, from someone that's relatively high up in what we would call the United States government and uh, get to, you know, just kind of take all of your experiences and put it to work um, at, a, at a large scale. So talk a little bit about how that call came to be and the uh, work that you've been able to do during under or during this administration. Yeah, so uh, that was a, a shock to me because <laughs> I, I wasn't super involved in the campaign at all. And um, in fact, it's, it's, we don't share a party in common um, with the, the current incumbent. Um, but I, 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 I've been a volunteer uh, for the, the uh, White House uh, Commission, the White House Fellowship Commission, um, for about four years. And um, the previous administration had my name on a list for like, these are people we want to appoint when we win. And I think someone just found a list and just said, okay, that guy, he's okay. And so I get a call. I'm sitting in my office at home. I get a call from unlisted and I'm like, Hmm, let me pick that up. And they said, hi, this is so-and-so for presidential personnel. Uh, the president Biden intends to appoint you to the president's commission of white house fellowship. Do you accept? I'm like, yes. <laughs> they said, okay, swearing in is next Tuesday. We're going to do it via zoom. I'm like, Okay. And so uh, I'm standing in my dining room and, yeah. and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I have a tie and everything up in the, the, the chest up anyway. And I, I swear in to be a commissioner to the President Commission for White House Fellowships and immediately saw some people in that final round that I had seen in the regional round. Mm-hmm. You normally don't, that normally doesn't happen. And so that was just really great to see some of them to the end. But I think one of the things I bring, number one, I run a lot of cohort experiences through Aspen. And yeah. so I'm 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 explaining some of the nuances of of team of cohort dynamics. You can't have the same type of people. You need to curate the cohort. Uh, so you need a quiet one. You need an extroverted one. Yeah. You need a scientific. You need a MacGyver. You need you know the dainty one. You need you need to put this Scooby Doo group together, right? Yep. And uh, so I've been able to bring that. I'm also one of the younger people on the on the commission, and so I'm I'm giving the perspective of a person that is still climbing in his career. Well, just like these folks, they're they're maybe uh, 10 to 15 years younger than me that are applying, but I can still somewhat relate, right? We're having some yeah. of the same conversations. They're still eligible for the fellowships that I've done. And so even for the folks that are not successful, I'm I'm talking to them and saying, number one, you should reapply. Number two, here are four different options for you. Yeah. I suggest you apply to all four because if you get this far with us, you know, they only pick 30 finalists and they call that number down to less than half. And that's your, the people that become White House fellows. Yeah. Um you know, you have um, other options and other ways of getting here and, and you're gonna have a great experience. And so I really enjoyed uh, being part of the mentor program yeah. uh, for them. And, and so just talking to them, getting a part of their lives. Some of the, if you're ever feeling a lack of inspiration for the future of this country, talk to some applicants for the White House Fellowship. Mm-hmm. Some of the greatest young Americans among us are these people that apply for the fellowship. They, they're like, they're, their stories read like novels I'm like, you're not real. You're from central <laughs> casting. You know, you know, I was born in Colorado with no electricity and always wanted to fly. I made paper airplanes and I be- went to West Point, became a, uh, a fighter pilot. What? Yeah. <laughs> what? And like, but these are people that are great. And the one thing I do is probably different than others. I tell these White House fellows who stay in government as long as possible. Mm. I said, yeah, you can go back out to the private sector. And I know that's the typical pattern. But people pay millions of dollars a year to approximate the experience that you get to have every single day. You mm-hmm. already have a, a top secret clear, security clearance. You are as hireable right now and can help right now your country better than any other time. Okay. So 
please try to hunker in, stay here, stay another year. And we're seeing uh, some changes, like typically people are, are coming in and are leaving, but we're seeing a lot more people staying in for another year or two, not as fellows, but as, you know, GS-15s or SESs, uh, these different designations in government. And like, and we, we have a 60% of the federal government is over 60 years old, our employees. <laughs> we have a, a, a time bomb, a labor time bomb about to hit our federal government. We need, we need some horses. Yeah. And these folks represent that young talent that um, hopefully will stay around for a while. And so I'm I'm going to keep preaching that gospel of like, hey, once you're in, we're going to hold on to you for a few years. Your your, your country needs you. This is another way yeah. to serve. Um, and so I, I've really enjoyed the experience. It's, it's very unique um, yeah. for me. And I've done four professional fellowships, selective fellowships. And this is certainly um, one that I wish I would apply to because yeah. these are these is the cohorts are just tremendous. Some of the the best among us, really. Yeah. I mean, the best among us. Well, how cool. And thank you. Now, I think, you know, something you said earlier and I want to, you know, maybe kind of close down on this. And that is, um, you know, you said one of the great experiences of the work you've done is being able to bring people together to talk about controversial topics. And I think in today's world and probably throughout the history of time, <clears throat> people are opinionated, especially when it comes to a controversial topic. Mm -hmm. However, to hold fast to an opinion and not be open minded to hear the other side of an opinion uh, typically leads to not being able to solve any problems or find resolution or find what can be a win, right? How can we make progress on the topic? So when you're getting folks together and you're like, these people need to meet, uh, and I know they <laughs> may not sit on the same side of the fence of a topic, yeah. uh, you know, how are you bringing people together? Because I think if, if we as people could realize this quicker, right, like how can we find a way to talk about these topics and have open air about it? Uh, I think that's the quickest way to find ways to win in some of these topics. Yeah, you know, I um I I'm gifted at a few things and one is convincing people um uh, to do things, right? <laughs> um and uh I was in Sao Paulo last week and the Eisenhower Fellowship asked me to lead a conversation on Gaza. We have 2000 fellows all over the world, a pretty strong contingent in um, the Middle Eastern region. And so they're like, we, we need someone that's that's not going to, to blow up the house here. We're in the house of Eisenhower and we don't want to blow up the house. Well, um, uh, through a lot of WhatsApp conversations, <laughs> yes. uh, con convincing the right calm people to, to appear, like I, I need your presence mm -hmm. because you're a common force and I need your presence because you actually have studied this issue and I need to create safe environments for, for people to have these conversations and then framing, framing it such that you don't leave open-ended questions yeah. because that's, that, that gets you in trouble. Um, you have time limits. You, you have exactly two minutes to get to your point. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so um, it, it, it takes some work for sure. Um, the, the, I should say the more controversial topic, it, the more work it takes, yeah. uh, but getting people used to and comfortable with, with civil discourse is the, is step number one. Yeah. And so 
I really enjoy, I have a, this piece I call Becoming an Inclusive Republic. And it's, uh, we look at 250 years of American history. Mm-hmm. And the narrative is actually one of positivity, because I do believe that every generation has actually expanded our notion of what it means to be an American. We've expanded the enfranchisement to more people. And, you know, you show you know, Supreme Court cases, we have speeches, we have these great moments in time. And people leave those experiences pretty fired up. Like, you know what, things aren't nearly as bad as I think they are. And I think it's reminding people that we've been here before. 1940 was the first America First campaign, okay? Uh-huh. Uh, and so it's, it's not like we, we're, we're, we're treading new ground here. We've had people uh, that have been controversial running for national office. Uh, I think what we haven't had is, is social media. Right. And this, this ability to, uh, uh, to find uh, your corner of, of the internet, uh, no, matter where you, no matter how crazy your thoughts are, but uh-huh. getting people out of that to real life um, is is the challenge and and the opportunity and so those are the type of things I lean in on um, yeah. leading dialogue in person yeah. as often as possible because it's it's real easy to be an email thug uh, from your house but when you are standing right next to a person you're not going to say those acerbic things you're not going to make a personal attack because you know that's rude and impolite and so um, I like in person pressing the flesh again those those secular convenings yeah. getting folks together. And like, look, we know we're going to disagree. That's fine. But we're still going to have a drink afterwards. Yeah. Okay. We're still going to listen to the DJ and dance together afterwards. Yeah. And so that has been, I think, the tactic. You got to create this environment that's sa- of safety, intellectual and, and personal and uh, safety, and then frame the topic in a way that doesn't really leave a lot of open space for people to go off and say crazy things uh, and be really crisp with the facilitation. You gotta be really yeah. crisp with it. And so it's an art, no doubt. It's an yeah. art form, um, but I've had a lot of practice, yes. <laughs> a lot of practice. And there's so much more work to be done in this regards. I mean, in my dream of dreams, I'm, I'm doing a Prairie Home Companion style road show to, you know, the top MSAs in the country. And we're talking about belonging. We're singing about it. We're, we're doing group dialogue on it. Uh, and we leave that city inspired that that's my, that's to me, that's real significance yeah. and hopefully surrender too. Yes. Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, Cordell, I want to say thank you for sharing your story and your journey. And it's amazing to see all the things you've already done, all the things you'll continue to do. And, uh, We'll have to do this in our three or four years when you've done uh, your on the road show and we'll uh, hear how it's going. Yeah, we're going to bring it to Omaha. Absolutely. We're going to bring it to Omaha. You'll hear me. Good stuff. I love it. (laughs) Great. Well, thank thank you. you so much. Thank you.